Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Murder Mile. Today, I'm standing on Darbley Street in Soho, W1. One road north of the second killing by the Blackout Ripper, one street west of the pawn robbery by the Randy Canadian sailor. A few doors up from the racist attack on Brian Robinson. And the same street as the gentle garotta. Coming soon to Murder Mile. At 4 Darbley Street, on the ground floor of a four-story Georgian terrace, currently stands Creme, a cookie shop. Only these are not those nasty British biscuit-like splats, which were as flat as roadkill, as hard as tarmac, and blessed with one flavour, sickly sweet. These are big fat gooey cookies, thick like muffins and soft like pillows, which melt in the mouth and make you wish the diets didn't exist. Mmm, yummy. Being popular, you'll often see long lines of eager eyes, keen to peep through this curved window, to drool over these gorgeous treats created within. And yet it's hard to stomach the fact that such an abhorrent and brutal crime could ever have been committed, where such sumptuous cookies are lovingly baked. But back in 1856, this was a prosperous tobacconist shop ran by a mother of three, Sarah Boosfield. She worked long hours to support her three children, and many said, also her husband William. A pointless little man, who dreamed of fame, rather than fulfilling his responsibility as a father and a husband. But what could have driven this quiet little dreamer to slaughter his entire family. 
my name is Michael. I'm your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 228 William Boosfield and the Price of Fame. Everyone has a plan of what they wish their life to be. Some achieve it, others don't. And whereas some may fight to ensure the safety of their loved ones, others will do the unthinkable when their dream drifts out of reach. Sarah was born in Westminster in 1827, the only child of John and Anne Jones. From her father, being a carpenter from South Wales, who ran a successful joinery business and purchased several properties to earn an income as a landlord, he instilled in her a solid work ethic. From her mother, a native of Chelsea, she inherited a sense of love and described as pleasant, friendly and affectionate. She had a devotion to her family which would never be split apart except by tragedy. Sarah had brains and business sense. In an era where a woman's place was solely as a mother, a wife, or if she was a widow and a spinster, to earn a meager pittance doing menial work. But as the perfect harmony of both parents, alone, she could have done well. But with a big part of her life's dream, to marry and to have children, that part of her dream required a man. And his name was William Boosfield. How and where they met is unknown. But having impressed both Sarah and her parents, he must have played the part of a loyal lover and a future breadwinner well, as they both liked him and loved him. Whether it was all an act, or a role he was willing to play for a time, again, that is unknown. But for the first few years of their marriage, William would perform the part of a husband and father as best that he could. As a native of Marleybone, William's upbringing is mostly unrecorded, as although he was raised with two sisters, he didn't seem to be the epitome of a loyal and loving son, but a boy who exasperated his parents. Described as being of a repulsive aspect, he seemed taller than his five foot eight inch frame suggested, as his body was as thin as a witch's broom and his pale face had the hollowed-out features of a ghost. And as a quiet and sullen man, who was often lost in his own thoughts, his conversations were punctuated by the blowing of wind or the puff of his pipe, rather than the words which unraveled the workings of his mind. Since his school years, his baffled parents had attempted to get this idle boy into a profession. 
first as an errand boy for a tradesman called Mortimer on the Strand, and later as an office boy at a solicitor's, rising to the role of clerk. But raised in the shadow of the blossoming Western theatres, as William yawned over spreadsheets, it wasn't a desk job he yearned for, but to tread the boards. Dubbed by his furious father as a silly little hobby, acting was not seen as an honest career for a decent man by civilized society, but on the same level as whoring oneself out on the street for a few coins. So with William's hopes of being a stage prancer, or God forbid, a singer at his parents' discretion, fearing that the neighbors would ask, what's wrong with the boy? His dreams were royally stamped out. In the winter of 1849, William Boosfield married Sarah Jones, becoming Mr. and Mrs. Boosfield. With one of Sarah's dreams fulfilled, and their first child conceived on their wedding night, this was the wake-up call which should have jolted William from his days and made him the man his family would deserve. But having married without his father's permission, with his parents disowned as an argument ensued, there was no one left to force him to endure a dull job and to hold back his dreams. Or so he thought. On the 16th of December, 1849, Anne Eleanor Boosfield was born. As a healthy girl, she was raised in a loving family home by a doting mother and was adored upon by her grandparents, John and Anne. But from her own father, William, sometimes he fed and held her, but little more than that. A neighbor stated, he was fond of his children, but not excessively so. And with the same being said of his love for his wife, in the places where William failed as a husband, Sarah's father had to step in. Described by another neighbor, as a good man who always showed his daughter the most marked kindness and supplied her with everything they required. Sarah and her children would never suffer any hunger or poverty. Even though John would state, William hadn't earned a day's wage in years. William's work ethic was non-existent, as although he had briefly trained as a French polisher, like many of life's dreamers, He'd had his business cards made up, but had no intention of doing the job. Unable to pay the rent, or even a few basic bills, John, Sarah's father, purchased the family a ground floor flat at 4 Darbley Street in Soho, and wisely moved himself and his wife into the flat directly above. As a small practical lodging, it had two purposes. 
in the back parlour, next to a cast-iron fire for cooking and heating, and a warm horsehair bed where William, Sarah and Anne would sleep. They had a place to live, but also out front, a thriving business. Having purchased the tobacconists, which sold tobacco, pipes and papers as expected, but also the essentials like logs and kindling, with their brood soon to be followed by Eliza in January 1852 and John in July 1855. It was hoped that, given a shop of his own, William could provide for his family an income and become a good father and a loving husband. It was hoped. But hope is a cruel word. Having neglected his business, as much as his role as a breadwinner, being a worthless idle fellow, as his own wife would call him, William and Sarah had frequent fights. And with William unable to provide much, if anything, for this family, although she was a busy mother of three children, all under the age of six, with one still suckling at her breast, Sarah ran the tobacconists. From dawn till dusk, she bathed the kids, she made the meals, she sewed the clothes, and having opened the shop, often with her little ones at her feet when her mother couldn't babysit, she served the customers, she purchased the goods, she earned the money, and she got the babies ready for bed. Her days were long and exhausting, and with their marriage decaying, as William's nights were spent in a fruitless search for the wrong kind of work, Sarah and William had begun to sleep in separate beds. In her last attempt to get William into a job, at around the same time, Sarah's father had purchased him a set of workman's tools, including a chisel made of iron with a wooden handle and an unblemished cutting edge sharp enough to sever the hardest grain. It was a chisel William would use only once to end the life of his wife. At this point, it would be expected that William's descent into multiple murder would be preceded by a spiral of drink, depression, and rage. Only with no history of insanity, William was not a violent drunk or a drug addict, but a sullen man who was fixated on one thing, his dream of becoming an actor. During the first part of the winter of 1855, a winter so cold it was dubbed the Great Frost, William was working on a poultry wage of five shillings a week at the Princess's Theatre at 150 Oxford Street. That year, he performed in a pantomime, only as neither a gifted actor, nor being quite taciturn, too quiet to project his voice. His name was not on the poster. Billed as a young man 
William was little more than a background artiste, whose silent performance was there to add colour to each scene. He had no lines except for what he mimed, and he had no purpose except to add a dash of window dressing. By January, with the newly built Royal Opera House in Covent Garden opening, William got work as a silent set filler for Professor Anderson, the infamous magician billed as the Wizard of the North. As a polite young man, he didn't chat with his fellow thespians. As a boy, he didn't fraternize with any of the dancers. And as an actor, he wasn't the best. As with his performance described as lacking energy, he found it difficult even to smoke authentically on set, even though he smoked at home. With a show every evening, plus a matinee every Wednesday and Saturday, although busy but earning a pittance, the only time he saw his wife and children was in bed or in the tobacconist's shop. Whereas a charming young woman who was bright, chatty, and knew that the best way to keep her mostly male customers coming back was to engage them in a bit of banter. He didn't like the role that she played. Taught by her father, who was a shrewd businessman, Sarah knew to be polite and professional. She knew how to be friendly without being too familiar. And she knew how to be flirtatious as a striking young woman. But as a loyal mother dedicated to her three children, that's all it would ever be. It was only through his simmering jealousy that William was ever seen working in the shop. To act as a barrier between the wife he claimed to love and the customers he had learned to loathe. When in truth, it was they who would rather be served by her than by him. Saturday the 2nd of February 1856 was an unremarkable day, as the only bitterness in the air was the biting wind as the great frost lingered on. And with snow underfoot, all manner of feet precariously walked. At breakfast, they argued as they often did, but it was nothing out of the ordinary. And being Saturday, between his matinee performance and the evening show, William made his moody presence known in the shop, as a slew of young tradesmen came in to buy tobacco and to attempt to flirt with his wife. At 7.30pm, a witness heard them quarrelling over Sarah being improper, stating, I had not the slightest idea if it was anything more serious than usual. And having made up, they went about their jobs. If those few bickering words had been the spark which had ignited his rage and left four innocents dead, then his actions that followed and his performance at the theatre would have been off. 
only it wasn't. He played his role. He fetched some milk. And through the snow, he walked back home to Fort Darnley Street. At 10.30pm, John saw William in the back parlour, with six-year-old Anne asleep in their bed, and four-year-old Eliza snuggled up beside her, as William bounced their restless eight-month-old son John on his knee. He was said to be calm and cheerful. As the dawn chorus broke and the church bell struck seven, with an odd calmness, William walked a ten-minute walk from his home to Bow Street Police Station. Described as sober yet distressed, when PC Fudge asked why he was here, William simply said, To give myself up, I have murdered my wife. Pleading for the PC to kill him and to ease his pain. Although an inch-long wound had been slit across his throat and a second was still flowing freely from a slash to his left wrist, not all of the blood was his. Across his aghast face, down his gulping throat, over his once white shirt and with a thick red goo dried into crusts on his shivering hands, he wasn't delusional when he gave them his address, just distraught. Accompanied by PC Fudge, as the carriage carrying Inspector Dodd drove into Darbley Street, he was shocked to see that this road was so quiet. As still silently sleeping, a crowd hadn't been roused by the murder. With the door locked, Inspector Dodd knocked, waking what he thought was the first floor lodger. Who are you? Who is this racket? As unaware that the Welshman was the victim's father, Inspector Dodd bluntly stated, Police, a murder has been committed in the back parlour. Startling him awake. Unbolting the parlour door, along the shop's stone floor lay spots of dried blood as a line of handprints daubed the walls with red smears. In his agony, John called out, Sarah, 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 Sarah. but he got no reply. With the candles dead and the shutters drawn, the room was dark. With the fire out and a howling wind, it was deathly cold. And with no life heard, in the bed lay a silent lump under a woolen sheet. Touching his daughter's pale and blooded face, his fingers knew instantly that she was dead, as not a breath rose from a bloody body, nor steam from the deep long wound which had ripped open her neck. 
James Hadaway, a surgeon from Berwick Street, examined her body in situ, stating, It had divided the skin and all of the soft parts down to the fourth and fifth vertebrae and splitting the carotid artery. Inflicted using a razor, this initial wound had occurred as she slept. Only her other wounds were more hateful. There had been an intention to bleed this woman to death. With three cuts to her left elbow, which had bifurcated the artery, and two to the right, these were made to open the veins. But with the heart found empty of blood, instead he stabbed her in the face, as to deface her in death. For John, aside from the tragedy of losing his daughter, was the irony that she'd been murdered with a tool he had brought William to help him find work. As on the pillow lay the chisel drenched in blood. With the bedsheets disheveled and her blood splattered up the walls, what concerned Inspector Dot was why she had no defensive wounds upon her. In the last two minutes she had lived, she had fought for her life. Only with her nails intact, no fingers broken, and no slashes to her hands. Why didn't she fight back? And yet it was as he moved her slowly stiffening body that he realized the reason why. As a good mother, a loving woman, and a children's sole protector. As William's razor slit a four-inch long wound across her throat, and her bloodied airways gasped and gagged for even an ounce of oxygen. Her only thought was to protect her babies. And although she had shielded them as best that she could, Anne aged six, Eliza aged four, and John, who was only eight months old, had all had their throats slit. With the inquest held at St. James's workhouse, so feverish were the locals to see justice, that the boardroom was full, the street was crammed with crowds, and the police had officers guarding the house. Paid for by a deluge of public donations, with Poland Street impassable, a series of black, horse-drawn carriages lined up at the back of the workhouse morgue on DeFore's place. Weeping and furious, as the crowds jostled nearer, suddenly a hushed silence descended over the people. As through the doors, four coffins emerged in ever-decreasing sizes. With one so small, a single pallbearer held it in his arms. Sarah, Anne, Eliza and John were all buried in a single grave in West Brompton Cemetery.
His trial at the Old Bailey was a mere formality. As declared sane, his guilt was evident. And described as a most dreadful character. Although there was an absence of motive, he was sentenced to death. Throughout, he was said to be overwhelmed with grief. Upon hearing his sentence, it is said that he nearly fainted and had to be removed by a jailer. From Newgate Prison, he callously wrote a letter to Sarah's grieving father, blaming her murder on her alleged adultery. And with his appeal denied, on Saturday the 29th of March at 4pm, just one day before his execution, he attempted to take his own life. According to the turnkey, whilst he sat in bed, staring intently at the fire, he threw himself headfirst into the grate. As the flame scorched his hair, the hot coals seared his skin, and as the room stunk of burning flesh, his face became a mass of bubbling wounds, which popped and spat like hot fat. But having been rescued within seconds, his fate wouldn't be decided in this room, but at the gallows. Therefore it's odd that for William, whose deadly dream was to become an actor, that he would fail to realize that his greatest performance was yet to come. On Sunday the 30th of March, 1856, at 6am, he rose from his prison bed. He had his wounds bathed, and with his last request being a little wine for breakfast, the sheriff, the reverend and the governor came to collect him. Only William, unless he was faking, was not well. As held to a chair by two aides, with one wiping a frothy liquid from his mouth, he appeared to be in a dying state, and his limbs refused to work. Whether this was a symptom of his burns, a cunning ploy, or just plain cowardliness, we shall never know. But although the doctor declared his pulse was low, but his arteries were active, with his face still red, blistered and swollen, although he was described as an appalling sight, his execution was imminent. At 8am, having been carried to the scaffold by four men, with two at his arms and two at his legs. With a hemp noose around his scorched neck, which still bled from his tender burns. The Reverend read from the burial service. The prison bell rang its deathly toll. And the 5,000 strong crowd fell silent. Only his death wouldn't be a quick and kindly act of compassion. 
as with William Calcraft, famed as an executioner, who, like William, was a showman. Seeing these executions as a form of entertainment rather than an act of punishment. As the crowd sat supping their beers, he would wow them with his cruelty. So with his hands and legs tied, as Calcraft removed the bolt, Bruceville dropped. Only he didn't fall a few feet as his neck snapped, but mere inches as his throat was strangled. Seeing his body twisting and flinching in pained agony, as his body weight pulled on his neck, the crowd roared with glee as the man dangled. And although it took most men several minutes to die, the show was not over. as having somehow swung his feet up as William secured himself precariously on the scaffold. The crowd cheered. Seeing his act of rebellion, Calcraft kicked his legs so the strangling could continue, and at that, the crowd booed. And so it went on. For several minutes, William swinging his legs up and Calcraft kicking them off. Upon his fourth attempt at trying to save his skin and a full ten minutes into his torture, as William exhaustedly stood there, wobbling on a slim slip of wood, with the crowd growing ever restless as his protracted agony descended from a bit of harmless fun into an act of wanton cruelty. Keen to end it quick, and to appease the turning masses. Calcraft threw himself at William's legs, and with his sixteen stone of weight, he hung off them. As for the next few minutes, William's body was gripped in a convulsive twitch, until suddenly he went very still. Buried in an unmarked grave, inside Newgate Prison. The last sound he probably heard was the applause of the crowd, which marked the curtain call of William Boosfield. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Oh. Holy, holy moly, 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 moly pudding and pie. Gonna take your little hat off. There we go. Oh, dear. It's fighting to get that one done. Only because I'm in an area where uh, loads of loads of gooses love to hang out. They love to hang out. And th- there's normally like about 100 gooses here, but there's almost none today. But I can hear them in the background. They're on their way. And I can hear them going, getting nearer and nearer. It's like, oh, you little bastards. And above me is all the little parakeets as well. It's pointless little green parakeets that spend their spend their life going eh, yeah, making horrible bloody noises, little bastards. Oh, I don't agree with hunting, but those little parakeets just get rid of them. What's the point to them? They shouldn't be here anyway. Ooh, bloody foreigners coming over here with their green wings. Uh, so there we go, folks. I uh, hope you enjoyed that episode. If indeed you can enjoy an episode of a, of a, a pointless little man who uh, murdered his entire family. What a horrible story. Oh, but I'm just going to open the window a bit. I'm going to open the window a bit. going to pop on my uh, my water with my tea that's ready. Oh, it looks pretty lovely outside. Nice and warm, except I'm going to be in the coffee shop editing. Editing the... Spending hours and hours to get rid of all the the pops and clicks and horrible sounds in the audio. Oh, anyway. Anyway, welcome to Extra Mile. So I've been away a while, haven't I? Uh, Unscripted, unedited bit. What day are we on now? 26th of September. So technically you don't know that I'm back because I've already done the next few two episodes before I left to go to France, but now I'm back from France. So even though you won't be hearing this till middle of October, I'm I, I'm in the past. Whoa, look at me. I'm in the past. Let me tell you what's going on in the past. It's pretty much the same as the future. Uh, our politicians are all shit. Uh, they're doing a crap job, as they always do. It's what they do, isn't it? Uh, anyway, I uh, just got back from France. It was very nice. Weather was good for about four days and shit for two days. I think I brought all the shit weather with me. Uh, but it was very nice. Got to see my dad and my stepmom. I haven't seen them in about a year, which was nice. 
uh, a little bit burned uh, which was good because the weather was good at times so I sat there uh, vegging out I did nothing I didn't take any laptop with me I didn't didn't do anything it was very good uh, and then I sat there getting a bit sunburned and drinking uh, Lefe Ruby so I think over here we only seem to have a uh, regular Lefe and Lefe Brun which is a bit of a madman um, over there they've got Lefe Ruby uh, I think we can get it in some places here and it's got a kind of a, a nice cherry flavour to it it's very nice it's very nice so I enjoyed that uh, and got very sunburned and did lots of walking um, just because they're in the middle of nowhere and I the problem is you have to drive everywhere like into the nearest village you have to drive and I don't like that I'm just like I just like yeah okay there's a little village seven miles away I'll happily do like a seven mile journey there and back so 15 miles just to go and pick up a pastry even though the pastry shop will be shut so lots of exercise but uh, lots of uh, visiting uh, lots of really good places to eat that's the thing I found fascinating about France is I'm only really used to Paris and places like that but um, in kind of middle of nowhere even like we walked into a place that looked like a, a trucker's stop and uh the food in there was exceptional like the food came out i was expecting slop on a plate uh and it was like th delicious three course meals that were exquisitely designed and you just go wow this is this is not what i was expecting gonna um, have my herbal tea there we go so that was all good yeah really good food went went to see a cave uh, a, a cave full of crystals that was really interesting except when we went in there they give us headset because we're english and the the tour guide was in french and the lady did say she said uh, uh we're having a bit of problems with this at the moment so uh hopefully it'll work uh, it didn't work uh, we, we we got the first two minutes and then basically uh occasionally it would cut in uh, on unimportant bits and like uh we, we realized the bits that we would get like would be about three minutes long and then the tour guide would do a bit for the french people which was about 15 minutes long with lots of jokes in it as well because they're all laughing so yeah we had no idea what was going on but it was very nice we did that so uh yes so i'm back here now back in the back in uh good old united kingdom there we go uh hope i hope it hasn't cocked up any been cocked up any more since uh since i left it was shit when i was leaving it's probably still shit now isn't it uh so what's what's going on uh, um um oh just quickly uh uh thank you to new patron subscribers so thank you to Teresa, michelle cressida and robin howell so thank you Teresa, michelle and robin thank you so much for becoming patreon subscribers of course uh, you get lots of goodies in there lots of goodies that i don't share anywhere else uh, you get exclusive walk with me series i think there's like 160 episodes of that so far uh so you can enjoy all those uh and wh when i'm when i'm away researching i do uh, walk with me so you, you get updates on what's happening with the future episodes and all things like that you also get uh video and uh ebooks and there's lots of goodies in there it's all it's all it's all uh, it's all lovely stuff so yes uh um if you're new don't forget if you're new to extra mile this is the unscripted unedited bit obviously uh we're gonna do a quiz shortly we're gonna do some extra stuff found in the episode as well so um 
if if you ever came on the the uh, ill-fated uh, now gone murder mile walks uh, you'll slightly recognize this story this was one of the stories i used to tell on the walk but i never i never did it in the podcast same as william crease i never did them because i was like well you know i don't want people coming on the wall going oh i've already heard that story um but now i don't do the walks anymore i decided to tell the the william boosfield story in full so there you go there you go uh, of course if you want a little bit of a, a factoid to go with this um where do we get the word hangover from uh, it's that final scene that we get the word hangover from which is because it was uh, a public spectacle and people were executed in public and it it was meant to be as a deterrent but people it was like kind of x factor today people would turn up and they they want to see people punished and they want to see people abused therefore they'd turn up and they'd have a great time and go oh i loved it it was great fun i'm a moron so uh yeah people would turn up to executions they'd bring it would be a family event they'd bring picnics with them they'd bring beer and that's where the phrase to uh to be hung over comes from is that in the morning many people would get really pissed and watch the executions because it wasn't just the execution there was an old it was like an all-day event you got singers and dancers and all that shit going on and you know you get really drunk and then in the morning people would wake up with a with um a sore head <coughs> and therefore it was dubbed a hangover there you go oh lots of useful facts well done michael well done so um I'm going to do you some quiz questions and then we'll dive into some extra stuff about this episode. So, uh, it was just nice to do this episode in full because obviously on the tour, I only really had four or five minutes to do each bit. So you had to kind of gloss over a lot and, you know, I couldn't tell things in full. But this, the, the whole point about this was to get a chance to get everything into it. So here we go. Um, question number one. Don't forget, I haven't edited this episode yet. So, uh, I may edit out the bit that this question relates to. Uh, question number one. What is the name of the shop at 4 Darbley Street today? So 4 Darbley Street today, what is the name of the shop? Question number two. Where was Sarah's father from? Question number three. Where was Sarah's mother from? Question number four. What was... Sa- Ooh, I hate burpees. Question number four, what was Sarah's maiden name? Question number five, William was born in what part of London? Question number six, what height was William? Question number seven, what was the name of the tradesman William worked for on the Strand? Question number eight, except as an errand boy and a clerk, what job had William briefly trained as? Question number nine, what tool did John buy for William? And question number 10, the winter of 1855 was known as what? So there you go, let's, I'm just gonna close over this oh, window a bit because the sunlight is really streaming in. Oh, right, okie pokey, pig in a pokey. Let's do this, so. Um, William being an actor I mean he wasn't really an actor they 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 called him a uh uh they said he worked as a, a young man uh, which is one step higher than a, a super numeracy and a super super numeracy actors were usually character actors uh in operas or ballets or in his case his pantomimes who would train under professional direction to create a believable scene and they would earn about 5 shillings a week uh, basically 
glorified background artist really don't forget this this isn't in films this where you have a big set this is on a, a stage so uh relatively small um he we don't know much about his career because because he wasn't billed therefore he doesn't really appear anywhere but uh he did join the princess prince the princess's theater up until the christmas at uh, 150 Oxford Street. So if you're walking along Oxford Street on the on the, up round Soho area and you see where Sports Direct is, that is where the Princess's Theatre used to be. Um, obviously around this time we've got the um, Covent Garden Theatre. Uh, this is kind of an interesting time for William around this time because the... Uh, what was it? It was the Theatres Act of 1843 had broken up. So originally there was a monopoly on theatres, but now it was kind of anyone could kind of really run a theatre at that point. So a lot of new ones started to open up. And obviously uh, the Covent Garden Theatre uh, was originally the Royal Italian Opera House. Um, that had gone through a, a couple of changes. It also burnt down. Um, uh, just prior to that i can't remember the dates of that so uh yeah it was it had just been remodeled it was just opening up uh there was a new show coming in and this was going to be uh where is it professor anderson the wizard of the north i'm sure i've got some extra details here about professor anderson where is he where are you uh john henry anderson his name was an infamous magician uh, there are a couple of pages online about that because uh, he he was he was relatively well known of his uh, of his day. So oh, uh, almost spilt my tea then. Uh, so yeah, um, quite a, a decent show to be a part of. But um, you know, uh, William wasn't exactly uh, a huge part of it. Um, in fact, uh, Professor Anderson, his show he was in so a year before coop being a pain in the ass outside uh, a year before this was meant to be his farewell show and he got up to aberdeen and he did a farewell show and apparently the show was such a success that it actually inspired him to not do a farewell show it's kind of like uh, elton john isn't it he's a, his farewell no not farewell show um so he would do um he decided to do a much larger performance and he did one at the lyceum which is a big uh, theater here um and then uh, at the uh, Covent Garden as well. Uh, unfortunately, uh, where is it here? He played a show at the Lyceum in London and then moved to Covent Garden. Um, uh, but that year, after the after one of his performances, the theatre caught fire, destroying all of Anderson's properties and bankrupting him for the second time in his professional career. There you go. Don't be a don't be a, be a magician, folks. Folks, folks, can't talk. My brain is gone. Um, so let's dive into some stuff about William. Um, his jealousy. See what what it seems to be is that his wife seems to be very professional at her job. Do you know, obviously, if you're going to you run a shop, half of it is to have good stuff to sell, but also half of uh, kind of half the battle really is to kind of be the kind of person that people want to come and get stuff if you if you get stuff from a shop and the and stuff's good but the person behind the counter is an asshole you just can't be oh you just think oh, i'd rather not whereas if it's a nice person and you have a good chat with them and you get on well with them and and their stuff's good and the you know it's not too expensive you think yeah i'm definitely going to come back i think that's half the battle i don't think william understood that he was a bit obsessed with himself and obsessed with becoming an actor whereas she was 
you know, raised by a father who was a good businessman. Um, he was uh, he ran a joinery and a carpentry firm. He owned quite a few houses. So they weren't well off, but he was the kind of person always investing, always thinking. And, and this is an era where a lot of people didn't have bank accounts as well. So, you know, she learned a lot from him and she knew how to how to um, how to work. It's weird, isn't it? Because, like, as as William being an actor, he should have learned how to work an audience, and that's what she's doing. Is she's working the customers? She knows how to how to get the most out of them to get her to like her, and then to come back. Do you know, simple things, being polite. But he's he's just so jealous of her that it really shatters apart their relationship. It really does. Uh, that particular day, uh, Mrs. Bennett, I think she lived on the second floor, uh, said they often had words, meaning a bit of an argument. Uh, I mean, every now and then, occasionally, um, this was mostly because he could not provide for the children. What does seem to be uh, a possible link towards the motive there is he seemed to be more jealous and upset on Saturdays. So Saturdays are the days one of the two days because Wednesdays as well Saturdays uh, he would do matinee performances in an evening show uh, so he was away from the house more than that but uh, because she was a considerate tobacconist what she would do is for the local tradesmen she would give them credit on their tobacco and then so like they could come and get their tobacco she'd mark it in like a book and then on a Saturday they would come in and pay off their monies so on Saturdays when he wasn't there that much she would have a lot of young men coming in uh talking to her she would be polite to them they would come in and pay off their money so uh he didn't seem to like that um apparently at 5 30 p.m he overheard his wife talking improper with a 16 year old boy who worked at the neighboring piano forte manufacturer and that manufacturer is literally uh corner of darbley street and um wardour street it's like two doors down um again she was just being pleasant and not inappropriate but he you know he's a jealous man he didn't see that at 7 30 p.m a supernumeracy so someone who uh w- was just below him in the theater who knew sarah and william well and lived local was in the shop william and sarah were quarreling and he said uh as as was always the case whenever he entered the house um uh they were arguing i had not the slightest idea uh uh, that there was anything more serious than usual so they were arguing people knew they were arguing they had a tendency to argue but it wasn't a huge big fight it was just you know couples bickering as happens you know he never got physical uh that evening he performed his part at a pantomime though say a pantomime it was actually the, the musical show at the Covent garden theater um everyone who worked with him said nothing really extraordinary happened he kind of did his job and he went home uh, as mentioned in the episode, do you know, uh, John Jones, uh, Sarah's father, uh, saw him uh, with one of the children believed to be John uh, bouncing him on his knee. She got out to get some butter. Everything seemed fine. Do you know, they had a couple of arguments that night, but nothing really major. It, what, nothing out of the ordinary happened that night. Um, but it is said that for the first time in eight months, so it was around the time of the birth of their last child that things really went south. That really things really went bad really quickly. Uh, but uh, that was the first night that really he had slept in the same bed as her and the children. Uh, we don't know whether they were making up or whether things were better. Uh, 
I mean, they still seem to be arguing, so we don't really know. I'm having a swig out of my uh, Blackout Ripper mug. There you go. Uh, uh, what else we got? I didn't put this in the episode because it slows it down, but between midnight and 1am, Mrs. Bennett, so Mary Ann Bennett, who's a widow on the second floor at one of the lodges, she went down to get a bundle, two bundles of firewood, which uh, she knocked on the parlour door, so even though they're asleep... I don't think they were asleep at that point. I think they're still talking or whatever. Um, Sarah answered it, stating, we're in bed. Sarah called to her husband to get her to give her a bundle of wood and said, will you rise to get it? Uh, Sarah spoke in a cheerful tone, but muttered a few words, which I could not hear. Uh, and, uh, Mrs. Bennett said, Mrs. Boothfield said in the most cheerful voice, I will leave it at your door at six o'clock in the morning. So someone, someone... One of the neighbours dropped by at about midnight, 1am, went to get a bundle of wood. Maybe this was a regular thing that she did, you know. Um, but yeah, said said there didn't seem to be a problem. But no one throughout the next... So between 1am and 7am, when he went to the police station, no one heard anything. So even her parents, who were one floor above, heard nothing as well. You know, there was no crying, there was no shouting, um, no argument at all. As far as everyone is concerned, they all went to bed, uh, them and the children. Um, let's have a look. Um, so he goes to uh, Bow Street Police Station. Uh, PC Alfred Fudge. I used to enjoy saying that on the tours I used to do. PC Fudge. Because it's always a little giggle before you get into the um, the sadness of the story. Uh, he arrived there as mentioned in the episode PC Fudge uh, said "What? where are you going William said in here PC said what for William said to give myself up I have murdered my wife um, Inspector Dodd who was the inspector at Bow Street Police Station said uh, William was uh, the most most perfect calmness and composure uh, even though he stated he had murdered his wife, he said, uh, Dodd said, I did not think he was intoxicated. He was in a very distressed state. He was searched and a latch key was found. Um, they did actually uh, check him as best as they could in that area. Obviously, they couldn't do blood tests, but they, they would kind of smell his breath. And there was no hint of alcohol on his breath. He seemed agitated, but he didn't seem delusional. Um, do you know, there's nothing really... Oh, uh, his... Um, I hinted at this in the episode. I haven't put put it too much in there. Inspector Dodd noticed a wound near William's jugular vein as if he had attempted to destroy himself and his left hand was also covered in blood. The wound was not a severe one, he stated, only an inch long. It appeared to have been, to have severed the skin. His hand was bleeding considerably. Uh, Inspector Dodd said, It did not appear to be a very severe wound. It appeared to be about an inch long. It had not separated any veins. It appeared to have gone through the skin. It looked like a very clean wound. Um, also, when they removed his jacket as well, they realised that one of his shirt sleeves was missing. Um, this was heavily blooded, and uh, they would find that shirt sleeve under the bed later on. I didn't put that in the episode, because... It, it the connection of it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense why whether he'd ripped it off himself to kind of maybe he'd ripped it off himself to kind of stem the blood flow to the wound to his neck or his hand we don't know so i didn't put that in um let's die barking dog woo woo 
random dogs just barking for no reason, as they do, as they do. Uh, at least I'm not recording, which is good. Well, I am recording this, but this this bit's fine. I don't mind dogs barking during this bit. It's, it's the other bit. Um, let's go down to uh, let's go down to so the um. Well, fuck it. I, I do you know what? I'm going to ruin one of the quiz. I've already ruined one of the quiz questions a little bit earlier. So if you spotted that, I did, I try not to draw attention to it. I'm going to have to ruin one of the other ones now because I need to draw attention to this. So, uh, why is that dog having a bark? Uh, there was a cat on my boat earlier on. Just sat there in my bow, just like a tabby, just staring at me. Didn't want to come in, which was good. And then would just lick itself and then bugger off. It's what they do, isn't it? Thank you for licking your genitals on my boat. Maybe I'm just jealous. Um, so the weapon itself was a five-eighths chisel, uh, finds it five inches long and an eighth of an inch in breadth. Uh, this was found on the bed pillow with Sarah. The blood on it was still slightly wet. Uh, and there was a, a shaving razor, uh, which was Williams, which was broken. Uh, both were smeared with blood. And the chisel uh, left a jagged wound. So that's how they were able to know which weapon was used on which parts of the body. So with Sarah, it was the razor that was used to slit her throat. Most likely that was the first one. And then the the uh, chisel was used for the wounds for the um, the elbows, so the veins, but also the wounds to her face as well. Uh, uh, Inspector Dodd said there was a great quantity of clotted blood between the dead bodies on the bed and a great quantity of blood on the floor. I traced the blood from the side of the French bedstead across the shop. There was a great deal of blood about the shop. So we, so it doesn't look like he moved the bodies, but what it does look like is that he, he certainly tried to kill himself at some point or at least make it look like he was trying to kill himself. So that's most likely where the blood across the shop came from, but it's unlikely that the bodies were moved. Uh, we really don't know what happened between that one o'clock and the seven o'clock uh so it would have taken him about 15 minutes to get to the police station um we don't know when they were murdered it was certainly a couple of hours more because the bodies were cold or cooling but let's not forget it was an incredibly cold winter uh the fire was off at that point so they would have been cold uh but obviously cooling at a, at a faster rate uh so we don't know what happened there doesn't seem to be been a struggle uh dodd said the bedclothes were in a very confused state uh, as mentioned, under the bed was his shirt sleeve completely saturated with blood. Uh, what else we got? What else we got? Let's do. Let's go to what the surgeon said. Uh, on glancing at the wound at the woman's throat, and then then at the chisel, uh, the Dr. James Hadaway stated it was his opinion that the murder had been committed with with uh, one or two weapons. It would be two weapons eventually. Uh, uh, it was evident uh, it appeared that there had been an evident evident intention to bleed the woman to death uh, before other wounds were inflicted he also said mrs boosford was quite dead well done doctor uh, with an incision on the right side of her neck about six inches about four inches long there were two incisions on the right arm and three on the left made for the purpose of opening the veins but very little blood flowed from them um, a puncture wound to the left cheek, an inch from the corner of the mouth, and a lacerated wound to the right side of the lower lip. Um, the wound on the neck was 
a clean incised one so that's the one that would have been done using the razor dividing the skin and all the soft parts down to the fourth and fifth vertebrae and splitting the ligaments so relatively heavily done but don't forget everything you've got in the front of your throat is quite soft and easy to kind of cut through with a knife whereas anything when you go down to the the, the spine that's pretty hard um uh, so splitting the ligaments the carotid artery was clearly divided uh, there was a clean cut through the nightdress of her left shoulder uh, three cuts at the bend of the elbow which had bifurcated the artery and on her right arm two inches above the bend of the elbow there were no wounds to her hands or her arms except obviously the ones intentionally done her heart was empty of blood uh, and the division of the carotid artery was de- deemed to be the cause of the death uh, there was no struggle. Uh, that was a moorhen you just heard sh- a shouting outside. Um, there was no struggle. Uh, it's likely that that first wound was inflicted in her sleep, so the one that slit across her throat, that of course would have woken her up, but unable to call out. Um, the doctor said death would have occurred within two minutes. Um, there was no sign of uh, chloroform, laudanum, or any sleeping agent that had been used. Um and with the children it's kind of uncertain whether the children were in bed with her at the time it was likely um the children didn't cry out or not that anyone could hear um so we're uncertain whether he had also murdered the children whilst they slept i think i think that's more likely and uh it's likely also that he probably went oldest to youngest as well so Anne first who was six uh found two incisions on the right hand side of her neck and one on the left either of which would have been sufficient to cause death um eliza the middle child who was four had a deep incision and another a little below the collarbone between an inch and an inch and a half deep um she was kind of the other side of the bed so her head uh, at the foot of the bed with one of her legs hanging off the side of the bed and john who was just eight months old um, had a deep incision and possibly a slight one on the other side uh, but there was so much blood by that point obviously every, everyone else had bled that uh, they were unable to ascertain um, exactly what had caused his death uh, the blade of the razor was found underneath John uh, but it was broken at that point as well uh, the handle was found just underneath Mrs Boosfield so Sarah uh, and the blade itself underneath John uh, bodies were removed to St James's Workhouse on Poland Street. So uh, if you're on Darblay Street, uh, on one side you've got Wardour Street, and that's where the Piano Forte guy was. And on the other side of Darblay Street, which is only it's you could walk it in about thirty seconds. The other side is uh, Poland Street, so they can actually see the the workhouse, St James's Workhouse, from their house, and that's where uh, the inquest would be held, and that's where the bodies were. Um, the bodies were kept in the morgue as well um let's just see what else we've got to do i don't want to go too far and over on this one uh i think that's it we i've already given you kind of everything to do with his execution as well so the uh, trial was held at the old bailey on the 6th of march 1856 uh between mr justice earl and justice reitman um justice reitman said this is a case of a most dreadful character and there will be no doubt that the lives of four persons had been destroyed by the prisoner However dreadful and horrible the case might be, yet the justice of the country demanded that uh, we should all perform 
their duty on such a matter, and I must confess that I could not suggest any reasonable grounds for doubting the prisoner had committed the act with, with which he had been charged. Um, his defence counsel, William's defence counsel, were at a loss as to what to say. They couldn't offer anything. They couldn't offer uh, insanity. Uh, they said there was an absence motive. He, he never said why he did what he did. The jury almost immediately returned with a verdict and asked if there was any reason why the death sentence should not be applied. They gave no answer. Um, death sent sentence was passed. The prisoner appeared overwhelmed with grief during the whole trial and never once looked up at any stage. Uh, he was removed from the bar in a fainting condition. Uh, and I think that is it. We've done the execution, so I'm not going to go into more about that. But uh, obviously, as you know, uh, Calcraft, horrible man, horrible man. Uh, thank God we had people like Pierpoint years later who uh, gave a more merciful death as opposed to turning it into a big old spectacle, which uh, Calcraft did. So let's go and do the quiz questions and then we're done. So don't forget, I, I've I've given you two of these. Uh, any more? No, I've given you two of these. Uh, so you, you've got two for free. There you go. Well done. Uh, um, but I haven't edited this episode yet, so I may edit some of these questions out. So, But not out of here because I don't edit extra well. There you go. Right. Question number one. What is the name of the shop at 4 Darblay Street today? It's called Creme. Question number two. Where was Sarah's father from? All right, but he was from South Wales. In it. Question number three. Where was Sarah's mother from? She's from Chelsea. Question number four. What was Sarah's maiden name? Actually, I gave away that one, didn't I? So uh, technically you got three. You should, you should have a minimum of three. Uh, it was Jones. Jones. Uh, question number five. Uh, William was born in what part of London? It was Marleybone. Question number six. What height was William? He was five foot eight. Question number seven. What was the name of the tradesman William worked for on the Strand? It was Mortimer. Question number nine. Oh, sorry, question number eight. Except as an errand boy and a clerk, what job had William briefly trained as? Oh, hiccups. Uh, a French polisher. <sighs> question number nine. What tool did John buy for William? I gave you that one, so that was a chisel. Uh, and question number ten. The winter of 1855 was known as what? It was the Great Frost. So there you go. There you go, folks. I'm going to head off and edit this now. Oh, it'll take me a couple of days. Oh, if only I decided to do be lazy and just do a lazy podcast rather than slogging my guts out. Oh, anyway, um, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, if you can enjoy that kind of uh, episode uh, next week, another one parter. I can't remember what it is. We'll find out. Anyway, thank you for supporting the show. Uh, don't forget, if, if you uh, if you like Murder Mile and you haven't done one yet, please do a, a review on any of the podcast platforms. Some of them you have to write things, you don't have to write much. In others, you just have to click star. You can click five stars and that'll be lovely. So uh, thank you very much for that. Hope you're all having a good week. Uh, stay safe, be good, lots of love. Bye-bye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.